Amen. You can be seated. As we are getting closer to Advent season, the four weeks leading up to celebration of Christ's birth, we are doing a quick little overview of kingship that we see from the Old Testament, because in order to see why Jesus is so precious, we have to look at uh, the promises of God to provide a king and what that king would look like and and just how uh, necessary it was that Jesus come and that he die in our place. Uh, And so what we're doing is a quick overview, and last week we looked at uh, just a synopsis of the book of Judges and how uh, the the book of Judges was a cycle, a repetitive cycle of the people's sin, the need to be rescued from their sin, God's grace in providing one who would rescue them. Uh, And we see as we get into 1 Samuel, the transitioning is happening between Judges and now the, the kings who would rule God's people. And so what I want to look at today is uh, the idea of kingship seen from 1 Samuel chapter 8. And unfortunately, the picture from 1 Samuel 8 is not a good one. It's a picture of the people's desire for empty substitutes. The people's desire for empty substitutes. Now, I want to remind you that Israel, all throughout her history, had, had the blessing of knowing that God was their king that he was the one who cared for them. But what we find in 1 Samuel 8 is, according to the people of God, God was not enough. They wanted someone else. And as you read through 1 Samuel, you'll see uh, mountaintops and valleys, and chapter 7 is actually one of the mountaintops where God's people finally rally back to him. They depend on him. They love him. They serve him. And oh, how quickly that changes, because by the time we get to 1 Samuel 8, the people begin to go astray once again. And so after this mountaintop of chapter 7 comes rebellion in chapter 8. And what I want to show you today as we study these verses is I want to show you very clearly our depravity as human beings. I want to show you our depravity. And then secondly, I want to show you God's grace. I want to show you God's grace because God's grace in this text is actually sandwiched by two pictures of human rebellion and sin. Chapter 8, verse 1, I want to show you the empty substitutes that people long for. We're told when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel, right? That was his job. Samuel's job was to speak for for God and the appointment of judges, that when a judge, remember judges in those times were, were not only military leaders, but also supposed to be spiritual leaders of the people. And so the people would sin, God would raise up a, a godly leader or su- someone who was supposed to be a godly leader who would bring the people back to God and then there would be that cycle of rebellion, the call back to God, God raising up of a leader, rinse and repeat. Samuel, we're told here, had made his sons judges over Israel. We're told the name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second was Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. And here's the problem, verse three. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, if Samuel wrote 1 Samuel, notice what he just did. He just basically said, my sons sought after gain. It's got to be a tough admission for a dad. 
and yet true. And it shows that even though you might live for God, it doesn't mean necessarily your kids will or your grandkids will. His sons had turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Just so you know, that's what humanity looks like, especially when you give human beings authority and power. Human beings love to abuse that power and authority. And here we find that his sons were no different. Verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you're old. That's nice of them. Behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. They want something different. The, the people don't want judges anymore. They, wanted, they want something else. They say, you're not going to be our leader anymore. You're old. Your sons don't walk in your ways, and so we don't want anyone after you. So they say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. You know, it's an interesting discussion to have right here at the beginning. The desire for a king in and of itself is not a problem. Because we see throughout God's word that he planned to give them a king. Remember we read Genesis 17 earlier. Where God said that kings would come from Abraham's descendants. But now we find that something is different. Deuteronomy, we're told, that God had planned to give kings to the people. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 and 15. God said, when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you and you possess it and dwell in it, then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. That's exactly what we're told in 1 Samuel 8. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So God didn't say having a king was wrong. The problem is the way in which and the reason why people want a king here. Because notice what the people say, now appoint for us a king. Guess what? They don't want to wait. They don't want to wait for God. They don't want God to choose a king for them. They want to choose one for themselves. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Guess what their ultimate desire is? They want to look like everyone else. But there's a problem. When God entered into a covenant relationship with the Israelites, he was doing that to make them different from everyone else. To show that he was different than all the false gods the other nations worshipped. And by the time we get to 1 Samuel 8, guess what? The people say, we're tired of looking different. We want to look just like everyone else. No wonder in verse 5, actually verse 6, we're told, but the thing displeased Samuel. That means it was evil in his sight. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel saw that what they wanted wasn't to rest in Genesis 17 promise or Deuteronomy 17 promise. What they wanted was they wanted a king for themselves and they wanted it now. And they didn't want to wait or rely on God any longer. So guess what Samuel did? If it had been me, I'd have said, forget all of you jokers. 
but he didn't. Samuel prayed to the Lord. See, see, they didn't have a king at this time, but guess what they did have? Someone who would intercede for them before God. Let me ask you, which is greater for the people, a king or a faithful intercessor? Samuel prayed to the Lord on their behalf, even though he knew this thing displeased and was evil. And so you would expect God to say, you think I'm going to give them that? They want a king. They want it now? You think I'm just going to dance to the tune of these sinners? And the Lord, verse 7, said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. That's odd. God says, give them what they asked for. Now, in our day and age, when we pray for something and God gives it to us, we assume that means he's pleased with us or he's behind the decision. God says to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. Uh Uh-oh. So God answers their prayers in the affirmative, and he gives them what they ask for. But when God does it, he says he's not doing it because he's pleased with them. He's not doing it because uh, it's the right thing for them to have. He, He does it to judge them. Oh, you want a king? And you want a king that looks like how you want him to look? Well, then here you go. See, the last thing that we really, sometimes you hear that phrase, be careful what you ask for. Sometimes God will give you what you ask for, not because he's pleased, but sometimes he'll do it to show his judgment. We're told God said, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. And in the original language, in the Hebrew, here's the emphasis in this verse. For they have not rejected you. They have rejected me. In the original language, the emphasis is on the you and the me. God is saying to Samuel, listen, I'm going to give them a king that they asked for. Because they haven't rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me. Just so you know, when we share the gospel with people and they reject Christ, ultimately they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting him. And here, God says, I'm going to give them a king, not because I'm pleased with them, but because they have rejected me from being king over them. See, here's the thing. God says the people of Israel have missed it. The people want a king, and they want it now. Well, guess what they've had long? God has been their king. He's the one who's been fighting for them. He's the one who's been providing for them. He's the one who's been caring for them. But they say, we don't want you anymore. We want someone else who we prefer. Reminds me that we as human beings can easily grow tired of God's goodness to us in a lot of different ways. And one of them is here. They don't want God to be their king anymore. They'd rather have someone else. And God tells Samuel, I'm going to give them a king, not because they've rejected you, but because they've rejected me from being king over them. You know what the biggest problem, you know what every sin boils down to? Every sin boils down to 
desiring a king other than God. Every sin is us desiring a king other than God. And many times that's us trying to be king ourselves. That's the root problem. Go all the way back to the garden, Genesis chapter 3. Eve and Adam eat the fruit. Not just because they violated God's don't do list, are they cursed? But because ultimately they didn't listen to God, they desired to be God themselves. Remember what Satan tells them. You will not surely die. God knows if you eat this, you'll be like him. Here's what they didn't understand. They already were. They were made in his image. But they didn't want that. They wanted to be in control. It wasn't enough to be created in God's image. It wasn't enough to have perfect fellowship with him. It wasn't enough to have the perfect provision of God. They wanted to be God. And so when Satan said, go ahead, eat, nothing will happen. All he's doing is driving them to say, hey, it's okay. Just be God yourself. When Satan tempts Jesus, what does he present himself? What does he present him with? Listen, you don't have to walk to the cross. You can claim it right now. Do it yourself. Do it your way. What's he presenting to him? You don't need the Father. Claim it for yourself. And what did Jesus say? He knew the cross was the only way in which he would be exalted, and so he's going to do the will of the Father. But I want you to notice Satan tempts him with the exact same thing he tempts us with. Be God yourself. You don't need him. And here, God says he's going to give them a king, not because he's pleased with them, but because it is judgment against them. Why? He's showing us that human beings are totally depraved. And what I mean by that is not that you are as bad as you could possibly be. Because let's be honest, we could all be worse. It doesn't mean you're as bad as you possibly could be. Total depravity means every single part of your life is tainted by sin, every bit of it. There's not one area of your existence that isn't affected by sin in some way. And that's us as human beings. All you have to do is read the Bible and you'll see that human beings are messed up sinners and we do it all the time over and over again. And so we would expect God to look on human beings like that and go, I'm done with you. God tells Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. He says, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. God says, they've been doing this throughout time. God says, this is not new for human beings to be rebels. This is not new for human beings to want to be God themselves. It's been happening ever since I was taking them out of Egypt. Remember when they were enslaved there? By the way, oh, you want a king? You remember serving under other kings, other rulers like Pharaoh? How'd that go for you? But he reminds them of his goodness to them. Now then obey their voice, verse 9. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. See, we see the depravity of people. We see human rebellion and sin very clearly, right? Every, and by the way, when you read this, don't just go, oh, those silly Israelites. I can't believe they did that. Read yourself into that. You're the one. I'm the one saying we want a king now. And God, in the midst of all that sin, in the midst of all that depravity, guess what God does? Rather than casting them aside, he graciously acts. You know how he gives his grace here? 
by warning them about what's going to happen as a result. God warns them ahead of time. Be careful what you're asking for. Realize what you're going to get in the hopes that they would turn away from that and say, no, God, we have a king already. It's you. And God graciously warns them of what's to come. We don't deserve that, but he does. And, and the warning is, is stern. Verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. Remember, thank God he gave them an intercessor. Someone like Samuel who would pray on behalf of the people and seek God when everyone else wasn't. Verse 11, he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Here's God's warning. Oh, you want a king? Here's what you're asking for. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. In your Bibles, I would encourage you to highlight or note or mark all the times it's going to say he took or will take. Here he says, he will take your sons. You want a king? Guess what that king's going to do? He's going to take your sons and he's going to appoint them to do what he wants them to do. Verse 12, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Now, these are all part of what it means to naturally be a king, but what seems to be emphasized here is this is above and beyond. This is abuse. Verse 13, he will take, not just to take your sons, he's going to take your daughter's to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. They're going to dance to his tune. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards, olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He's going to take from you. Verse 15, he will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. Verse 16, he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. Verse 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. You all get the pattern? You want a human king? Guess what he's going to do to you? He's going to take and take and take and take and take. He is going to rob you. He is going to abuse the power you give him. He is going to sinfully rule over you. Now, remember, this is in contrast to the fact that they have God as their king. And guess what God did for them? He gave, 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 and gave. He says, you want a king? I'll give you one. But just know, just like all other human beings, he's going to sinfully rule over you, and he's going to take, take, take for himself. Now, you would think that intelligent people would look at that and go, well, then I guess we should change our mind. Never mind, we don't want him. But remember, God's grace in warning them is sandwiched between two pictures of the depravity of human beings. Because guess what follows right after the warning? You would think, everybody would go, wait a second, this is not the way to go. Verse, 19, uh, verse 18, and in that day, you will cry out because of your king. God says, you're going to cry to me to be delivered from your own king. 
whom you have chosen for yourselves. Guess what God says? I'm giving you the answer to your prayers, but guess what? You wanted this. You asked. You chose him. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Is there a scarier thought than that? Then God's saying, I'm going to give you what you want. He's going to take from you, and you're going to desire that I rescue you from his hands, but I will not answer you. Again, you would figure smart people would go, well, then we don't want it. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Oh, and, and just so you know, in your Bible, just put your name. And Jason refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Even in the midst of warning, the people say we'd still rather have that. <sighs> See, this is what human sin looks like. Human sin looks at the warnings of God and dismisses them and rejects them along with God himself and says we'd rather have what we want. And notice the reason why they are so set on this. Verse 20, that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want to be like all the other nations. We don't want to be different. Remember, this is the God who promised to bless his people and to care for them. And they say we'd rather not. These are the same people who desired manna in the wilderness and at the end of their wilderness wandering said we hate this food, we'd rather starve than to eat anything God gives us. Human hearts are desperately sick. We are wicked, and God's grace is poured out in the midst of it, and God warns us to not walk after our sin, not chase after those other gods, not chase after those other loves. God warns us to turn away from sin and to trust in him. But here the people say, no, we reject everything you said to us, Samuel. We want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. We want him to go in and out and before us and fight our battles. Guess what? God had already been doing that. But they wanted it someone else. Verse 21, and when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. Samuel the intercessor for the people goes back before God and he says, this is what the people have said. Not because God doesn't know, but because he's faithfully interceding for the people. Desiring God to know it and for God to act in mercy. Verse 22, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And Sam, I love that phrasing, by the way. Make them a king. Go fashion one. Go grab somebody. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. And off that small little statement, we find out why we needed Jesus so badly. Because guess what? When Jesus shows up, I want you to notice, what did they do to Samuel? Samuel was the intercessor whom God had given the people who was going to mediate on their behalf between them and God, who was going to petition God for them, and guess what they do to him? They reject him. They cast him aside. 
that can't be a clearer picture of Jesus, the ultimate intercessor who comes to intercede between man and God. And guess what happens when Jesus shows up? They cast him aside. Why? Because he's not the king they thought he would be. He's not the one they thought he would be. They thought that the Messiah was going to be this beautiful, majestic rescuer who's going to ride in on the golden horse and save them from Rome and all those who oppressed them and who was going to set up his earthly kingdom and rule and reign and they were going to reign with his people. But then Jesus shows up and instead he's preaching repentance from sin. He's talking about forgiveness of sin. He's talking about the fact that his kingdom is not of this world. It's a kingdom in heaven that's a kingdom of God that is not going to be realized right there in that moment. And all of a sudden the people say, we don't want this one. Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised again. And the people look at him and say, we don't want this this king. This is the wrong one. We need another. And Jesus dies as if he was the one rebelling against God the whole time so that people like us who had been rebels could be treated like we were perfectly sinless. Because what God knew we needed was a perfect king who would rightly honor him. See, every king who comes throughout the Old Testament, no matter how great or small, is ultimately a sinner who fails to follow God in everything, including the king who will be given by God. God's choice, David. David's life will be marked by rebellion against God. Showing us that there has to be a king who's going to come eventually who's not going to blow it, a king who's not going to sin, someone who's perfectly going to be king, and someone who's perfectly going to rule and reign with love and compassion and mercy and grace. And so God sends his son after a long line of sinful kings who don't love God, who don't honor him, who don't lead the people to worship him, after 400 years of silence where God doesn't speak into this void, God sends his son, the rightful king, and Jesus is the one who's going to perfectly rule over the people, and he's not going to be like Saul. He's not going to be a coward. He's not going to be unfaithful. He's not going to be selfish. He's going to give up everything everything for his people, and he's going to rightly rule and reign with love, compassion, grace, and mercy. Not only that, he's going to rise from the grave. He's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father, where we are told that Jesus, the rightful king, intercedes for his people even right now. Guess what? In 1 Samuel 8, God is showing us the need for a king, and he's showing us the need for an intercessor, and Jesus is the first one who combines both of them into one. He is the perfect king. He is the perfect intercessor, and it's all a result of the fact that he died in our place, and he rose again that we could be saved. He is the perfect king we needed. And in 1 Samuel 8, you hear us crying out to God, we'd rather be kings ourselves. And thankfully, in the midst of our depravity, in the midst of our sin, God didn't say, I'm done with you. God didn't say, I'm not going to provide for you. Instead, he gives the greatest gift he could possibly give himself. Right? Because what we need is a king 
And there's only one rightful king. And it wasn't David. And it wasn't Saul. It was Jesus Christ, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. See, what I want us to walk away with today is to understand that I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We all are those people calling out to be king themselves. That's us. That's us every day. And your neighbors who don't know Jesus, your coworkers, your family members who don't know Jesus, they believe that life is about them being king themselves, crafting their own life, being their own ruler and their own judge. They're no different than us. We desire the exact same thing. But thankfully, God graciously shows us and warns us where our sin takes us. It takes us to death. It takes us to separation from God. And all God says is, heed my warnings. You don't need a human king fashioned after your own likeness. You need the king whose likeness you were fashioned after. And this morning, what I want to tell everybody here in the room is, while you are a great sinner, Jesus is a great Savior, and you need him. You don't need your own deeds. You don't need your own efforts. You don't need to be king yourself. What you need to do is to rest and trust that Christ is the king you desperately need. And the good news of the scriptures tell us that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Anyone. I don't care how bad your background is. I don't care how sinful you've been. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. This morning, that's what you need. That's what I need more than anything else in this world. We are sinners who desire a king after our own likeness. Thanks and praise be to God that he doesn't give us what we want He gives us what we need, which is his son. Today, I pray you trust in him. Heavenly Father, I love you and I thank you that you are the king that we so desperately need. And Father, I thank you that in these verses we see that your grace is found even in the midst of our depravity. That while we're chasing after empty substitutes, God, you show us the real thing. You show us who you are. And you call us to rest in you and to trust in your holy name. And so, Father, I pray today that you would help us to glorify your name and to see that, God, we desperately need a king, and it's not a king that we can fashion by our own hands. It's not an earthly king that we can elect into office. What we need more than anything is we need your son, Jesus, because he is the rightful king of kings and Lord of lords. And, Father, we recognize this morning that every single one of us as human beings has sinned against you. Every single one of us has rebelled against you. And God, we don't deserve your grace. But I'm thankful you show us in these passages, in these verses this morning, that even though we are great sinners, your grace is amazing. Your grace reaches down and plucks us up out of the midst of our sin and rescues us into eternal life. And so, Father, I pray that what people see today in this room is their massive sin and your unbelievable grace. And Father, I pray that as we look on this, as we study these verses and think about them, that God, you might draw us to yourself, that you might help us to lay aside all of the deeds of our own hands, all the righteousness we try to produce by ourselves, that we would lay those things aside and realize that none of that can accomplish what Jesus has already accomplished. 
None of those deeds we do, no amount of goodness can ever rescue us from our sin. Only the finished work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so, Father, I pray you'll draw us into a love of Christ. And that today, God, someone within the sound of my voice would, for the first time, maybe realize that they have rebelled against God and they need to be forgiven. And that Jesus is the only all-sufficient King and intercessor for us. May we trust in him alone. Oh, Father, work in our hearts to stir up a love for you that far outweighs the love for these empty substitutes. Oh, God, I pray that we will not walk after what we see in these verses where the people disobeyed and the people rejected, but God, help us to trust and obey today. We know that can only happen as you change our hearts. So God, I pray that you'll do that this morning. For the Christians in the room, God, I pray you'll help us to not fall back into lives of wanting to be our own kings, but instead rest fully at the feet of our merciful King Jesus. God, I pray you'll change us by your word. We ask all in Jesus' name, amen.